0: Not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? How did the definition of woman become so controversial? How did it become normal, at least in some circles, to replace the word woman with menstruators or people with a cervix or people with the capacity to get pregnant? Maybe you think the trans conversation is only taking place between conservatives and progressives or between Christians in the LGBTQ community. But to me, the more interesting conversations about sex and gender are happening on the ideological left. That's why I'm excited to be able to talk with Kara Dansky. She's a lifelong Democrat, a former ACLU lawyer, a proud feminist, and the author of The Abolition of Sex, How the Transgender Agenda Harms Women and Girls. We dive right into the controversy, so buckle up. Kara Dansky, welcome to Truth Over Tribe.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Your book, The Abolition of Sex, How the Transgender Agenda Harms Women and Girls, was published last November, November of 2021. And I have to say, I absolutely loved the book. I read it, and then I bought it on Audible, so I listened to it all again. And I'm just really impressed. It is direct. It's brief. It's to the point. You had a great writing style. It's smart. It's interesting. And in it, you tell a lot of stories. And I just wanna start with a story that you open the book with, and that is about Rachel Levine. Rachel Levine, not too long ago, was named one of USA Today's Women of the Year for 2022. And if you're not familiar with Rachel Levine, President Biden appointed her to be the Assistant Secretary of Health for Health and Human Services. Now, what's interesting about Rachel Levine being nominated as one of the Women of the Year is that she was born Richard Levine, and only transitioned in 2011, when, if I understand it right, she was in her 50s. And similarly, UPenn nominated Leah Thomas as a female athlete of the year for the NCAA. Now, most people are probably familiar with her story. She was born William Thomas and swam for three years on the UPenn male swim team, and then transitioned and now has been swimming for the women's team. And as you could imagine, she's doing quite well. So look, Kara, here's my cynical take on all this. You could conclude that men are some of the best women, that men are so great, they're actually better at being women than women are being women if they're being nominated as Women of the Year. You're an intelligent feminist. What's your take on this?
2: Thanks for the question. And, you know, those of us who are active in this fight encounter that argument frequently. There are many men who pretend to be women who will say that explicitly. They will say, I as a trans woman am a much better woman than you as a cis woman. We can talk about what that refers to. Yeah, I did open the book with the story of Dr. Levine. I do not refer to Dr. Levine using she, her pronouns. I will only refer to him as a him. And same with Will Thomas. I will use correct names, assuming they're legal names, because people can change their names. That's fine. So I'll refer to Dr. Levine as Rachel Levine and to Leah Thomas as Leah, even though they're both men. But yes, I think you're absolutely right. And that's not even a hidden agenda. There are men masquerading as women who will say that they are better women than actual women.
0: It just seems like some of this is an insult to women for the NCAA to have Leah Thomas, like you said, Will Thomas, it gets confusing. I don't want to get into that in just a second. It just seems a bit insulting to women to say that these men are now Women of the Year. Is our society erasing women? Are we devaluing these women?
2: Absolutely. And maybe one of the best examples of that is Bruce Jenner, who was also named Woman of the Year. And Caitlin was asked, what is the hardest part of being a woman? And Caitlin's answer was the hardest part of being a woman is picking out an outfit every morning. And to women who have survived this incredibly misogynist society, that is gravely insulting. And I am here to assure your audience that the hardest part of being a woman is not picking out an outfit in the morning.
0: Wow. I had never heard that. That is incredibly insulting let's go down that for just a second because what i remember when bruce Caitlyn Jenner was on the magazine cover, and it was kind of the big reveal, that the picture seemed to play to all the traditional sexual stereotypes that society has of women. And so for Caitlyn Jenner to say the hardest thing about being a woman is to pick out your outfit every day, it seems like it's narrowly defining what a woman is. And it seems to be playing to stereotypes. That has to make you uncomfortable, given all that women do, all that women are responsible for, all that women have accomplished, to have womanhood reduced to picking out outfits or seductive pictures on magazines. Again, it seems insulting, and I'm surprised that so many women are willing to go along with it.
2: So we're in a really interesting political climate here, and it's no surprise that it's the Democratic political party, which is my party, to be clear. I registered as a Democrat at the age of 18, and I remain one despite my disgust with my own party's insistence on enshrining gender identity in the law. We could talk more about that if you'd like. But my point here is that it's very clearly the Democrats who are pushing this. And as you say, it is an incredibly regressive agenda. And it becomes very difficult because speaking as a feminist on the political left, I'm not afraid to call this a politically conservative, regressive agenda that seeks to enshrine sex stereotypes, very outdated sex stereotypes. And the way that it does that is by saying, if you wear a dress, you're a woman, right? Back in the day, it was declared that women had to wear dresses and stay at home and do dishes. And feminists were very successful in fighting back against that. And today it's politically popular on the left to say that anyone who wears a dress and does dishes and behaves in stereotypically feminine ways is what a woman is. It's incredibly regressive. But this comes across as confusing often to some of the conservatives that I have joined forces with because they can see quite clearly that it is what is typically understood to be the political left that is pushing this. And it is. It's the Democrats who are pushing this for sure. But that doesn't make gender ideology a progressive ideology. It's actually very regressive. And it's the Democrats who are pushing it.
0: So you talked earlier about pronouns, and I want to get into that. I would rather get into it later after you've had a chance to kind of unpack your argument. But I think in order to just make sense of the conversation, we've got to talk about pronouns because it gets so confusing about who we're talking about. You said already that you refuse to use pronouns that don't line up with biological sex. Can you explain that to us? Because I think some people see that as rude or they feel like we should accommodate to whatever somebody calls themselves, on name tags and emails that people list their pronouns. Why do you refuse to go along with that?
2: Yeah, it is becoming more and more common to see pronouns in emails. But two reasons I refuse to go along with it. One is that it's just not true wrong sex pronouns are an untruth. I think it's important that we maintain our connection with the truth. The other reason is that there has been some work done and a very interesting article published called Pronouns Are Rohypnol. For anyone who doesn't know, Rohypnol is colloquially known as the date rape drug. And what this article is essentially arguing is that if we use Wrong sex pronouns. And as we hear and absorb wrong sex pronouns, that actually does some work on our psychology. And what it does is it makes us forget that we're really talking about the material reality of biological sex. It makes us dissociate from the material reality of our sexed bodies and that it really does do harm. And it might seem innocent, friendly, polite to go along with so-called preferred pronouns. But what a lot of us don't understand is that the use of so-called preferred pronouns is part of a much larger agenda, which I talk about in my book, which is to make our society forget that the reality of biological sex is important in some cases and it matters. And so the use of preferred pronouns While it might seem innocent, it's actually quite pernicious, and I don't want to go along with that.
0: It makes sense to me. But like you said, there's a lot of cultural pressure in different communities, different fields, of course, in academia, and the medical institutions. There's a lot of pressure to put on your name tag or whatever, your email, like we said, preferred pronouns. And if you don't, you're seen as, I don't know, maybe on the wrong side of history, you're seen as regressive. You're seen as somebody who's not with it, not with the times. And it's really hard for people to resist that kind of peer pressure. And to me, it seems like, I don't know if I got this right, it seems like by putting your pronouns on there, even if they are traditional, in other words, even if you are a woman and you have she, her, or a man, he, him, that there's a sense in which you're saying, you won't know my gender unless I tell you. And it's almost like through the power of language, the movement is trying to get everybody to say, gender is a construct that you can only tell my gender if I tell you what it is. And so it feels like by putting your pronouns on something that you are acquiescing to the transgender ideology. Is that how you see it? Do you think somebody is complying and acquiescing if they go along with it, no matter what their motive is?
2: I would go further and I would say it's not almost as if this whole thing is using language to try to get us all to go along with the transgender ideology, it is exactly that, but I would also say that I would not use the word gender where you used it there, I will not use word gender when what I mean is sex.
0: Okay, yeah, that's helpful. In July, a Berkeley law professor squared off with Senator Josh Hawley, and I'm sure you've seen this. It was viewed millions of times, and they clashed over who could get pregnant. And I just want to play that for you and then have you explain to us what's happening and maybe how we should think about it. So let's watch that.
1: Before, uh, I want to visit with you, Ms. Metzke, but before I do, I just want to clear one thing up. Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? No, I don't think <laughs> so. Everybody. You are
4: denying that trans people like this? and
1: that me. leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you, Absolutely. or are they also treated like this? Where no, 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 they're, they're told that they're, to they're me? opening up people to oh, violence. We
4: have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet you might learn a lot.
1: Wow, I, I would learn a lot. I've learned a lot just know. in this exchange. Absolutely extraordinary.
0: So, Kara, Professor Bridges is obviously a very intelligent woman, accomplished. I spoke with a friend who had her for class at UC Berkeley Law School. And yet what they're talking about there seems preposterous to most people in America. People with a capacity to get pregnant. But she's not willing to say women are the people with that capacity. Can you help us understand what she's saying? What's happening in law schools or academia in this transgender world that she's living in?
2: So there's a lot going on in that clip. I do want to just say first, this statistic that is often cited that one in five trans people attempt suicide, these statistics have been entirely debunked. And the studies that document the attempted suicides of so-called trans people are methodologically flawed. So I just really want to be careful here because suicide is a very serious thing and anyone who is contemplating suicide needs help immediately. And it's tragic anytime someone takes their own life. And I don't want to minimize that. I do just want to say that the professor's statistics are wildly off. So I just want to make that very clear to your listeners. So this whole movement is an attempt to make us forget that sex is grounded in material reality. And I try to make the case in my book. I don't know if I succeed, but I'd welcome listener feedback. I try to make the case in my book that throughout the 1960s and 70s in academia, including notably UC Berkeley, there were a bunch of academics who built on theories of postmodernism to develop something called queer theory. And at the essence of queer theory is the view that sex isn't real. And I think to their credit, these academics were smart enough to realize that if they tried to push the idea that sex isn't real, they would have failed spectacularly because all Americans, everybody all over the world, knows what sex is and knows how babies are made and knows that only women get pregnant. We all know this. And so in order to push the agenda that they wanted to push, they made up this word called transgender, and they have persuaded society that the word transgender describes a coherent category of people for whom sex is irrelevant. And it's not true. Nonetheless, they have been remarkably successful in persuading Americans across the political spectrum that that word has some sort of coherent meaning, and it just doesn't.
0: So in this Senate hearing, they were talking about abortion, and Professor Bridges wouldn't acknowledge that women are the only ones who could get pregnant. So Senator Hawley pushes back and says, this then isn't a woman's right issue. And it makes me think of the story where the ACLU, who used to work for, and we might get to that here in a moment, that they changed a quote by Ruth Bader Ginsburg and took out references to women in relationship to abortion. It also makes me think about a theater production about Joan of Arc I saw recently, in which they were saying that Joan of Arc was a man. And so part of this is about the erasure of women. In other words, Joan of Arc couldn't be a woman because Joan of Arc was known for this physical prowess and bravery and fearlessness and taking on these big challenges. But can't women do all that too? So why is progressive society erasing women?
2: I mean, this is what is so frustrating to feminists. Joan of Arc was, of course, an incredibly courageous and brave woman, and she was killed for it. And women throughout the, what, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, were killed on suspicion of being witches because they were women. None of that happened because of identity. It happened because of their femaleness. Women in this country were deprived of the right to vote for the first several centuries, not on the basis of some nebulous identity, but because they were women. Women and girls all over the world are subjected to a horrific procedure called female genital mutilation. It is not called identity mutilation. They are subjected to that practice because they are girls. All of this has happened on the basis of sex, which the late Justice Ginsburg knew. And it's incredibly frustrating for feminists to be told now that we have to ignore the material reality of sex. And yes, you're absolutely right. It is erasing women and womanhood. And to suggest that Joan of Arc was somehow not female because of a bunch of sexist stereotypes is outrageously misogynistic.
0: For those of you who are listening to this, you are missing that every time Kara says the word transgender, she puts air quotes around it. And in fact, in the title of your book, the word transgender in the subtitle has quotes around it. And you just said a second ago, that's because it's just not quite coherent. I mean, what even the word means. Can you explain more about that? Is it just nonsensical in your mind? Why do you put quotation marks around transgender?
2: It's really interesting. I had a conversation one time with a friend who is a very intelligent woman. She herself is an attorney. And she was asking me, why do you care about the transgender issue so much? And the only reason I didn't use air quotes just then is because I was quoting her. And I asked her, well, what do you mean by that word? And she said, I guess... By transgender person, I mean a person who is transgender. And I said something like, okay, can you define the word without simply repeating it? And she paused and she said, I guess I can't. Okay, fair enough. Are you in the habit of using words whose meanings you can't define at all? And she said, of course I'm not. And I said, I know you're not. So why are you doing it here? And she kind of laughed and said, I guess I don't know. So the thing is, no one can really ever define it. Just another quick story, which I recount in the book. I was invited to speak with a group of politically active Republican women in a major U.S. city. And they invited me, knowing that I'm a radical feminist Democrat. And this was the local Republican women's group. And a woman said... Kara, what are we gonna do about the problem of transgender athletes in women's sports? And I said, okay, I've got some ideas about that. But first, can you tell me what you mean by transgender athletes? And she paused and said, I guess I don't know what I mean. And I said, do you mean men and boys? And she said, yeah. And I said, okay, if you mean men and boys, you can just say men and boys, it's fine. And she said, I didn't know we were allowed to say that which was so interesting to me. And it gets at what you were talking about earlier about social coercion. Most of us think that we're not allowed, whatever that means, to speak truth. And where are we as a society if we are not including Republicans, right? These are Republican women who didn't think they were allowed to just say men and boys when that's exactly what they meant.
0: But her question It kind of answers itself if you just speak more directly and clearly, right? Because the way she put it to you was, what are we going to do about transgender women in women's sports? And if you just say, what are we going to do about men or boys in women's sports? It kind of cuts through all the fog and it shows you how ridiculous the question is by just speaking clearly. And so that's part of the obfuscation of changing language that I think you're trying to push back against. So I want to show you another clip from another Senate hearing. Again, one I'm sure you're familiar with. This is the one involving Justice, now Justice Kentaji Brown Jackson, and she's being questioned by Senator Marsha Blackburn out of Tennessee. So let's watch that, and then I want you to comment on it.
2: Can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm-hmm. No. yeah. The fact that you can't give me a straight answer about something as fundamental as what a woman is underscores the dangers of the kind of progressive education that we are hearing about.
0: Kara, can you explain to us what a woman is? Can you define that complicated term? I know you're not a biologist, but can you help us? What's a woman?
2: I am not a biologist, but as far as uh, the dictionary is concerned, a woman is an adult human female.
0: And why won't now Justice Jackson just say that?
2: She was obviously nominated by President Biden. She was going before the U.S. Senate, which is barely a majority Democrat. She chose to say what she felt she had to say in order to get the votes to confirm.
0: In your book, Abolition of Sex, you tell a story about a woman in England who got in a lot of hot water by putting the definition of woman on billboards. Can you share that story with us?
2: So at the time, she was going by the name Posey Parker. Her real name, which she uses now openly, is Kelly J. Keene. And in 2018, she put up a big poster on a wall outside of the building that said woman means adult human female and a man who is a physician sadly, complaint to the billboard sponsors or the poster sponsors. And he succeeded in having it taken down. And the two of them went on a news program and argued about it. And Kelly J just made the point in 2018, which it was then, how ridiculous it is that we can't just say that a woman is an adult human female. Kelly J is still doing it. Once a month or so, she holds events at Speaker's Corner, which is in Hyde Park in London, where she invites women to speak about their experiences of women. She invites men to speak too, but she asks that women speak first. And she's still going strong. She's got a YouTube channel. She's absolutely wonderful. And she's a really important part of the global movement to protect the sex-based rights of women and girls.
0: There's an argument inside of feminism that is complicated for us who aren't insiders to that movement. There seem to be some feminists who are saying, look, sex is biological, and there are other feminists who are maybe on the other side of that issue. And there's quite a bit of disagreement between the two, and sometimes it can get kind of ugly. So the word TERF, or the acronym TERF, trans-exclusionary radical feminist) came out of that argument inside of feminism, I believe. And the feminists who disagree with you would probably label you as a TERF. My understanding is that people who have received that label have tried to kind of take it back and it was meant pejoratively, but they've tried to reclaim it and say, yeah, that's me. Can you help us understand some of the argument happening within feminism and maybe how your book has been received by the other side of the feminist argument?
2: So I don't know where the term turf originally came from, but yeah, its purpose was to denigrate feminists who stand up for the material reality of biological sex. And to be clear, there's not a lot of open communication between those of us who do stand up for women and girls on the basis of sex, and the community of women who you're referring to as feminists, I wouldn't even call them that, who reject what we say. I understand that they are popularly known as feminists. So we're talking about, for example, organizations like the National Organization for Women, Planned Parenthood, National Abortion and Reproductive Rights Action League, even the Women's March, all of these mainstream so-called feminist groups deny the material reality of biological sex, and they advance the argument that some men can be women because they are trans women. And there's not a lot of, or any, open communication between these two groups of people. So we're sort of over here fighting for women and girls on the basis of sex, and they're kind of over there fighting for men and boys to invade our spaces. And there's not a lot of interaction.
0: Did these people who refer to themselves as feminists, like you mentioned, the National Organization of Women, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, which, by the way, for most people out there to hear you say that they really aren't feminists, that's pretty shocking because for a long time, groups like the National Organization of Women were the leading voices of feminism, or at least one of them. So did this new so-called feminism come out of your brand of feminism? I mean, where did it come from? Aren't they the same people who used to preach one thing and they've changed views? Or how did this come about that we have feminists who deny the material reality of sex-based rights?
2: So there's a lot of money involved. I mean, I just wanna make it very clear to your audience that I contributed to Planned Parenthood for decades I was a member of now for a very long time. I will say one good thing about now, which is that it maintains that prostitution should remain a crime for the sellers and buyers of women, and that it should be decriminalized for the women who are involved in the industry. So I'll say that for them. And I agree with them on that. I also just, again, to be super clear about where I'm coming from. I engaged in abortion clinic defense when I was in college with NARAL, and I volunteered with NARAL when I was in law school. So I was a very active proponent of these organizations. And then more recently in the past decade, at some point, they started getting a lot of money to push the idea that some men can be women. There's a lot of money behind this entire industry, which we could talk more about. But I also just want to say that Planned Parenthood gets a lot of criticism for providing abortion services. My understanding is that abortion is maybe about 10% of the healthcare services, and people might object to my characterization of that. But my point is just that, my understanding is that abortion is about 10% of what Planned Parenthood does. But today, Planned Parenthood is also paid to hand out what are called puberty blockers to children, and they do this regularly. It is possible for a young person To go to a Planned Parenthood, say, I'm trans, and walk away with hormones that are intended to block their puberty. And it's really appalling what they're doing.
0: So you're insinuating, or maybe not insinuating, maybe you're just saying it really directly that you think that donors are driving the change that we're seeing in these movements and these organizations.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it can all be documented. My friend Jennifer Billick runs a blog called 11th Hour Blog. And her main focus is to document the industry that is pushing all of this. And that it's important to make the point here that most mainstream media outlets would have Americans believe that transgender is about a movement to protect the civil rights of a marginalized group of people. It's not true. Instead, what is happening is that a massive industry, and by industry, I mean a loose conglomeration of businesses, law firms. This is happening globally, the WEF, the World Health Organization, even the United Nations is very much behind pushing the idea that sex isn't real. And this is all documented at 11th Hour Blog. It sounds very conspiratorial, I understand that. But the problem with calling it a conspiracy theory is that it can all be documented. For example, there's a man named John Stryker who runs something called the Arcus Foundation. And John Stryker is a billionaire who is also heir to a medical supply company and who stands to inherit, I don't know how much money, from that medical supply company. And he started the Arcus Foundation. And in March of 2021, the Arcus Foundation gave the ACLU, as you said, my former employer, $15 $15 million to push this. And that's a small chunk of change in the whole picture of what is the gender identity industry. But $15 million is an extraordinary one time donation to a nonprofit organization.
0: $15 million to one organization will evidently change your priorities if you're that organization. So you've been really clear and upfront where your political loyalties lie, both in the past and even in the present. But what's interesting, and you mentioned this in Abolition of Sex, what's interesting is that you have received a warmer welcome or a greater hearing from people who are your maybe political opponents. So you've been on Tucker Carlson. You were part of a panel at the Heritage Foundation. What kind of blowback did you receive from that? Has this cost you friends, your convictions? Have they cost you friends? Have you lost friends over this issue?
2: Yeah. One of my longest friends will not speak to me. A lot of friends have just ghosted me on social media. And there are a lot of feminists who agree with me, who agree with everything I say in my book, who are very mad at me for doing things like going on Tucker Carlson, and speaking at the Heritage Foundation. I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be speaking at the Heritage Foundation, but I will tell you how that ended up happening, which is that a woman who lives outside DC, who I had befriended, who had a daughter who was binding her breasts, thinking that she was a boy. I'm very happy to say her daughter is no longer doing that. She is accepting her female body, so that's good. But at the time, her daughter was destroying her body And this mother, who is a Democrat like me, was desperate to get a hearing, to get a panel to talk about this issue. And she tried every moderate and every independent and every left-leaning think tank in the District of Columbia. They all turned her down and Heritage didn't. Heritage was happy to have the panel, which referenced a bill called the Equality Act, and the panel was called the inequality of the Equality Act concerns from the left. So to their credit, they didn't try to pass us off as a bunch of conservatives. We were a bunch of radical feminist leftists who went on this panel at the Heritage Foundation. And yes, it made a lot of people very angry. But, you know, this mother who was desperate to save her child could not get a hearing in less partisan forums. So she took the opportunity that she had available to her. And I can't blame her for that.
0: You call yourself a radical feminist. Now, does that just mean a really intense feminist? What's the word radical doing in there? Is that a certain brand of feminism?
2: So what the word radical is doing in there, and I appreciate the question because there's often a lot of confusion. A lot of people think that radical means extremist. It doesn't. The work that the word radical is doing there is talking about getting at the root of the problem. And for radical feminists, the root of the problem is male oppression of women.
0: One of the most interesting debates, I think, happening about this issue is within the LGBTQ community. So I think for people who are not really paying attention, maybe they think this is between the right and the left, a war between religious and irreligious people. But that's way overly simplistic, as you've already kind of demonstrated for us. And one of the most interesting conversations is happening within, like I said, the LGBTQ movement. They seem to be divided. The L and the G seem to be divided against the T. And for those people who think of that movement as monolithic, can you help us understand what this conversation inside the movement is happening, what the divide is between lesbian and gays and the trans movement?
2: Sure. So sexual orientation is fundamentally about sex. You can't have a sexual orientation if sex isn't real. And it's fundamentally about attraction to others. So straight people are attracted to members of the opposite sex. Lesbians are women who are exclusively attracted to women on the basis of sex. Gay men are men who are exclusively attracted to men on the basis of sex. And bisexual people are people who are attracted to members of both sexes. All of that. In order to have any of that make any sense, sex has to be real. And so then along comes the T, and the T, whatever it might mean, is fundamentally about one's own identity, right? If someone says, I am transgender, that has nothing to do with an attraction to other. It has exclusively to do with one's own sense of identity, whatever it means. It's not about attraction to other. And so that's really the fundamental split that's happening and increasingly lesbians, gay men and bisexual people are seeing this and they're standing up and they're saying no. Almost all of the lesbians, gay men and bisexual people of both sexes that I interact with are absolutely appalled at what they see as a complete takeover of their movement by straight people. A common phrase that I hear is everything to the right of the B is straight
0: people. That's interesting, everything to the right of the B is straight people. Wasn't gonna go here, but I was visiting with some family members who are very progressive and they live in a very progressive American city, that's all I'll say, but they're heterosexual. They are a man and woman who've been together for a number of years. And when we were visiting with them, I just asked them, you know, my way of kind of popping an interesting question in the middle of a boring dinner is to say, hey, do you guys think of yourselves as queer? And they looked at me like, how? yes, but how did you know we'd say that? And I kind of thought they might identify as queer, even though they've never had a same sex experience in their life. Like I said, they've been heterosexual their whole life. Attracted to the opposite sex. And it makes sense that everything to the right of the B then are straight people because they're straight people identifying with this movement. And it explains why LGBTQ numbers are rising so quickly because now you have people who aren't lesbian, gay, or bisexual saying they're part of that movement. So, what is it that's driving that? Why are people like the friends I'm talking about, why are they now all of a sudden identifying as queer? Whereas 10 years ago, I don't think think they would have
2: it's very popular it's very trendy it's also incredibly offensive to lgb people who are increasingly saying this is a slur queer is a slur that has been thrown around to denigrate myself my same-sex partner and it's often been used historically in conjunction with actual violence committed against lesbians and gay men and they're just appalled that straight people are now calling themselves queer on the basis of their identity. I mean, it's really kind of shocking.
0: It's interesting how language changes and how powerful language is. And like you said, it is trendy. It's a way to be a part of this minority community. And in our world right now, being a part of a minority group gives you a lot of social power. It's kind of weird because obviously minorities, by definition, don't have that power, but Maybe in our world now, they do because of their minority status. There's a couple more things I want to get to. One is that in the book, you talk about anorexia, and you compare anorexia to gender dysphoria. And I'm not sure I'm going to get it exactly right, but I'll give you a chance to correct me what I got wrong here. But it sounds like you're saying that in anorexia, someone sees themselves in a way that is not real. In other words, they see a vision of themselves or have a perception of themselves that doesn't line up with the biological facts. And that's somewhat similar to gender dysphoria. And a person feels like they are out of step with their body or out of sync with their body, that their gender somehow doesn't match their biological sex. In, in anorexia, what we don't do is tell someone that you're right. In other words, we work with them to get their mental framework to identify with their biological realities. In gender dysphoria, it seems like we do the opposite, that we tell them that their mental framework is right, and we change their bodies in all kinds of ways, going as far as surgery, in order to get their body to change to their mental perception of themselves. Why is there a difference? First of all, maybe I butchered that, but why do we handle anorexia so different than gender dysphoria?
2: It's an industry. I mean, as you're suggesting, we do not tell young anorexic women that they need to have liposuction in order to validate their confusion about their own bodies. But with this other form of body dysphoria, which is confusion about biological sex, we do it because there's money behind it. There's a ton of money behind putting a generation's worth of young people on a lifetime's worth of hormones. The numbers of young people that are reporting to gender clinics and saying that they're trans and going on opposite sex hormones is skyrocketing. It's absolutely shocking. And it's hard for many of us to get our heads around because it seems so unbelievable. But it is happening. And once you go on, unless you make a conscious decision to say, no, I am the biological sex that I was born, which increasing numbers of people do with devastating consequences, you have to stay on it for the rest of your life. There is a ton of money in that.
0: You're doing a job of bringing out the financial incentive here. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I hadn't thought of that as a primary driver behind this. But you're right. There's a lot of money to be made in this, just like there is in a lot of areas of life. So you you mentioned there kids who are identifying as trans So there's a lot of people who are listening who they don't have anything against trans people. In some sense, they don't care what adults do. They can do whatever they want, whether they agree with it or not, but they have kids in school and they're a little bit concerned that in schools, their kids are being told that gender is a social construct. They're being told that if they want to switch their name or their pronouns, that they can do that apart from the parents even knowing about it. If you were a parent with elementary-aged kids, middle school-aged kids, what would you do? How would you handle that? Do you recommend people get out of those public school settings? Or, I mean, that's not always an option for people. So how should parents think about this?
2: Right. I would actually say that gender is a social construct, but I mean that in a very different way from what people are being told today. Sex is not a social construct, right? Every girl is a girl. Every boy is a boy on the basis of sex. But you're right that children are being taught that that is not true. And it's extremely dangerous. And so I really want parents to be more than a little bit concerned. I want parents to be extremely concerned And what can they do? You're absolutely right. Taking kids out of public schools is not always an option. Most of us can't afford to send our kids to private schools. Most of us are not in a position to homeschool. Although I know increasing numbers of parents who are homeschooling for that very reason. I really hope that parents, and I should say I'm not one, I really hope that parents start taking a stand about all of this in their schools. Talk to their teachers, talk to their school administrators. I know it's hard. I know it's really hard because of the social coercion that we've been talking about, but I'm really worried that these kids are being taught a lie, and they're being taught a lie that is going to send these kids, increasing numbers of these kids, into clinics to get puberty-suppressing hormones, and then once they go on puberty-suppressing hormones... It's like 99% of kids that go on these drugs go on to cross-sex hormones and eventual surgeries. And I mean it when I say we're seeing increasing examples of young people. A lot of these young people are in their 20s and 30s. And they realize that they made disastrous decisions, whether as minors or as young adults, to make lifelong decisions about their bodies. I have heard from so many young women who had their breasts removed. I've heard from so many young men who had their genitals removed. And these people are on hormones. These women are on hormones that indefinitely change the tenor of their voice, their voice lowers, and they can never get their vocal cords back. And so many of these young people, it's in the tens of thousands now as of this year, are saying, that was wrong, I made the wrong decision, they're going off the hormones, and they're dealing with so much regret. They have so much regret and so much anger at the institutions that allowed this to happen. And we're gonna see more and more of that. It's just devastating when you hear their stories.
0: Yeah, the detransitioning movement is growing. I read recently that Tavistock, the youth gender clinic, I don't know if that's exactly the right label for it in England, recently shut down. It seems like the lawsuits are coming and maybe that's how this is going to be settled. Eventually, lawsuits are going to come and people are going to have big fines or go to jail or I'm not exactly sure what the outcome of that will be. So the abolition of sex, I can't recommend it enough. What else are you working on, Kara? that maybe people would be interested in following you on, either in social media or other projects that you're working on?
2: Sure, thanks. Uh, So you can find me at Kay Dansky at Facebook and on Twitter. And I'm currently the president of the U.S. chapter of Women's Declaration International. Women's Declaration International is a global organization with chapters in numerous countries, and we fight to protect the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights throughout law at the local, state, federal, and international levels. Please check it out at womensdeclaration.com. Anyone in the world can sign it, assuming you agree with the principles. Yeah, we're growing every day, and we are completely dedicated to protecting the sex-based rights of women and girls. I should say we're nonpartisan, We're nonpartisan globally. We welcome everybody. If you're a woman and you want to volunteer with the U.S. chapter, you can go to womensdeclarationusa.com and find our volunteer application, women only, and one of our volunteer coordinators will be in touch with you.
0: Well, I encourage people to go check it out. Whether you decide to volunteer or not, that's up to you. but check it out because instead of just sitting around complaining and commiserating over this, it's great to take a positive step forward. And maybe this is a place that you can fit in and do that. Kara, we really appreciate your time. Excellent book. I encourage people to pick it up. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye.